Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with HJC Helmets. I am your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me on the other end of a Zoom call somewhere else in the world is Mr. James Bender. Hello, Mr. Joe Robinson. I'm on a Zoom call somewhere else in the world. And on today's show is the godfather of gravel cycling, Mr. Tom Ritchie. Uh, But before we get into part one of this two-part podcast, James and I are going to rattle through some of the things that we're liking and disliking in the world of cycling right now. Hello, James. We're going to keep this one short and sweet today because we've got a massive two-parter as we spoke to Tom Ritchie, the man, the owner of the best moustache in cycling, for what seemed about six and a half hours as he regaled tales of him riding in the wilds of California. Um, I see... Um, rambling on there again James aren't I but James tell me yeah well yeah exactly you've got you've got bitten by the the Richie rambling bug he tells he's been such a good yarn so yeah do do listen to it all the way through some brilliant stuff about basically riding uh 23 mil, mil tubulars 100 miles into the mountains and only be able to drink out of streams basically living like a wild man yeah uh which we all love drafting mountain lions and stuff yeah but I mean, you know, segue that feeds into the thing that I do really like at the moment. Very specifically, it's being, as I said to you before, it's being able to use my bicycle as a means of transport, doing a lot of A to Bs. What's that about? <laughs> I know, ridiculous, right? Actually using it using it for what it was initially intended for, not sport, transport. And uh, most recently having cycled to Kent to see my dear mama and great family. Great county. Uh, great county. And it was her birthday, her and her twin. My auntie Joss. Happy birthday. Uh, and I won't say the number, but, um, you know, they are young at heart. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, that meant I had to take stuff, and taking stuff meant a pannier rack. So there is one by a company called Tailfin, which I've been using probably for about six years now, and it is deliciously expensive, stupidly so, because it's carbon fibre. It's even more expensive than yellow towel tuna. Basically, probably. If you put that next to um, some kind of uh, sushi bar at a marketplace, they'd probably be paying gram for gram more for the rack because it's very light. It is very light, um, but it's also very expensive. It comes in, I think, at £530 with two uh, ultralight bags. But wow. for that money, you get something that doesn't make your road bike look terrible, but crucially will fit on any road bike. So... It goes through, um, it it's clips onto a special quick release or um, through axle and then also clips to your seat post. So nice and easy to fit and also you can take it off in like seconds. The bags themselves hold up to nine kilos each either side. So, you know, you could get a couple of cats in there, a bag of kittens on one side and, you know, a few few bags of sugar, nine bags of sugar on the other. Uh, and no, this isn't an advert for Telfin. It probably should be because it's a really great product and that would is way too... Say, James, James, would you say it's the best pannier rack you've ever used? I'd say if Carly made pannier racks, it would probably be the Telfin. Okay. Not Carly. Carlsberg, isn't it? Carlsberg, yeah, but... I mean, both of them taste like piss. Sorry, <laughs> <laughs> this is very true. Anyway, so yeah, tell me, it. tell me something you're not liking. Let's let's. Uh, no, but I just wanted to add. They also make an alloy one. Now, okay, which is going to be cheaper. I do, which 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 yeah, which I think you know is is markedly cheaper. It's like 190 right, quid. Okay. Um, so yeah, so really enjoying that. What I'm not liking is sunglasses falling out of my helmet. I don't know what happened. Once upon a time, they used to market helmets with having sunglass garages. Uh, and I say garages because that's how the Americans say it. Not like us Brits to say garage. And that was the that was the mark of you being middle class, isn't it? If you had a helmet with a uh, garage. Yeah, in exactly. It. I've got <laughs> I've got two birth <laughs> garage for my sunglasses. Um, and now it's almost like they've gone the other way. So they've made helmets that deliberately shed sunglasses. If you put them into the vents, they just fall straight out. And I scratched a brand spanker's new pair the other day and because I was leaning over to look at um this caterpillar which I sounds ridiculous but I haven't seen a caterpillar for ages and it was crawling and uh yeah I was taking making this little video of it um sent to my mate and uh then the sunglasses fell out that's annoying that's why you, I you got to do what I do which is the Steve Cummins approach which is back of the jersey hook it in Back of the neck. Yeah, no, that does work. Back of the neck. That does yeah. work very well. But just on the sunglasses chat really quickly, I'd like to point out that Mark Cavendish is now wearing the Oakley Cato sunglasses named after... Huge Green Hornet fan. Yeah, yeah, named after the Green Hornet. And they are these sunglasses that have a kind of co-moulded um, polycarbonate bit that goes over your nose, a bit like a kind of Batman cowl. And 
Mark Cavendish, lo and behold, is suddenly winning stages again. So I'd suggest that the sunglasses are things that are making him win because his previous sunglasses, also Oakley, the jawbreakers, are terrible sunglasses. They're just terrible sunglasses because you can see the frames in your peripheral vision. Mm. Um, and I don't see that that's a particularly useful thing for a sprinter. So I think his change of sunglasses is the reason he's winning. So well done, Oakley. You've redeemed yourself. That's good to know. Good to know. Yeah. How about you then, mate? What have you been liking the last couple of weeks? I've been panic riding. <laughs> panic riding. I, I'm, I'm off to the Alps on a work trip, right? Yeah. Soon. Look at us getting back aboard, going back to normality. And I'm off to do some riding for the magazine soon, which is really exciting. Um, and because I've got to do three consecutive day in the Alps, I decided that I should probably go and do 100k around the flattest bit of Kent to prepare. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and in doing so. Um, I got to utilise a bit of uh, grub that got sent to me by the good people at Velo Forte that I know you're big fans of. Uh, so Velo Forte are a sort of, what are they? They're a nutrition brand that use natural produce to make food for you to eat on the bike that are both delicious but also easier to eat than the really sugary stuff that you sometimes get. And they've just released a new energy bar and it's mocha flavour, coffee and chocolate. It is bloody delicious James they are delicious I've tried so these. good so good I'd eat it off the bike um and serve it at a dessert at a dinner party like you once yeah. did back in the day get away with that um, easy yeah they're really good really good really yeah. like them what I like about them is they're they're slightly left field flavors like pistachio yeah. and lemon and fennel maybe which sounds kind of crazy but it means that you can eat sounds like a master chef dish but yeah it literally does it literally does you have you have to wear headphones to listen to the sounds of the sea and it gets served in the silver salver and you lift up it and it's got smoke the billows off it all of that but um yeah you can eat sort of like four of them on a bike in a ride and not just absolutely not get them ter- terribly bored with the flavor or just be generally disgusted by the taste Grab some Vela Forte bars if you're going to go out on a long ride soon because they're quite delicious. And the things I'm not liking at the moment is just shipping chains, James. Where to? Taiwan. I don't know why I did that. Um, I don't know. I was just probably being stupid when I was changing from the big down to the little ring. Basically, the the ring, the chain got chucked into the frame. I have a white frame, so it's left a mark on the frame. Oh. Then it left marks on my hands when I was dragging the chain out from the frame back onto the ring. Um, and I have white bar tape which, uh, you know, initially seemed like a good idea, but even <laughs> after about one year. Yeah. Uh, so then I had to wash my hands with my bot- what was in my bottle, and what was in my bottle was some Robinson's orange squash. So then I just had clean but sticky hands for the rest of my ride. That's um, the worst. I hate sticky hands. But, you know what, it was my own fault. Uh, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I do love our industry's um, solution to the fact that front mechs are crap. They've just gone one by. We don't know how to solve it. So let's just pretend that one by is the way forward and we'll just completely do away with this thing that doesn't work properly. Yeah. So, but you know, I'm not going to let that get me down because we're about to go into part one of what is a really good podcast episode with Mr. Tom Ritchie. So enjoy. So our guest today is about as difficult to pin down as the difference between a gravel bike and a cyclocross bike. He braced his first road bike tube when he was 14, and by 17, he had earned the nickname Senior Slayer on the Californian road circuit. Yet the draw of the wilds and the workshop proved too much, and by 18, he was more likely to be found in the Santa Cruz Mountains or behind a lathe than riding his bike on tarmac. He's often credited as a pioneer of the mountain bike, although he might tell you otherwise. And today, his bike company's products grace the Tour de France, the Mountain Bike World Cups, and myriad other races. He also has the best moustache in cycling. It might even be better than Ted Danson's. He is none other than Mr. Tom Ritchie. So, Tom, first off, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. I know um, by the sounds of what you're drinking, it's coffee. It's the morning where you are. You're over in the States. Um, could you just give us a quick snapshot of what you can see out of your window? Well, the sun is rising, looking south toward uh the Malibu coast, and we have uh, we have some unique sun coming underneath a, a cloud layer. Uh, it's going to be a beautiful day, but it's going to be on the chilly side. Winter has finally arrived. We have we had an amazing rain with hail the other day, so we're into the winter finally. <laughs> nice, nice. So uh, we were yeah just um, chatting about your kind of move from 
um, you, your uh, your hometown to well, or your birthplace to um, kind of the early beginnings of um, Silicon Valley. So how how did you get over into California, and how or when rather, I suppose, did you first kind of pick up a bike? What was that like, and what drew you to it? Uh, that's a, you know, the, it's a very, as you said, it's a convoluted, you know, story of, of, of what, what happened first and all. Of course, I was, I was a kid when, uh, uh, three years old, when I, when I threw my leg over my sister's bike and, and, uh, tried to ride it in New Jersey. Um, so completely the opposite side of the country when, you know, when I grew up, I was, uh, shy on the, uh, on the outside, uh, outgoing on the inside. And, uh, I would say, you know, it, the lights didn't go off until my dad moved us, uh, all the way across the country, uh, for a unique job at a, at a, at a company called Ampex, um, in Redwood city, California in 1963, the winter of 1963, 64. And I was, I think I was five at the time we left, uh, New Jersey, and I was six by the time we arrived. So I had a had a birthday over the over the over the travel, and I basically had no idea what the other side of the United States was like at that age, and my dad didn't either. He left New Jersey as a smoker, uh, arrived in California, realized how amazing it was to to do outdoor activities, stop smoking, join the Sierra Club got a bicycle, found sailing amongst his friends, his new friends, and became an outdoor, outdoor nut. And um, I was just along for the ride and kind of in his shadows until I got rid of the uh, Saturday morning cartoons and jumped on a bike myself and started riding with him uh, at a young age. I, I started to, my dad taught me how to repair sew-ups at, um, at age uh 10 and he um uh introduced me to to the the bike shop that he was he was uh uh starting to frequent in palo alto and a guy a wonderful man named sid jocelyn from england knew that i wanted a bike and i said sid can can i repair sew up tires for you and some and somehow work it off of that raleigh super course and he said yes uh, to my amazement, and I became his go-to guy for, for repairing his customers' tubulars. And that that led into some more frame building, though, quite quickly, didn't it? Because I think this is uh, there's various stories that just get told and told and told about you, and one of them is how early you started frame building, because you got a bike that was a, a Chinelli, is that right? That was broken. Um, this is after the rally, and you were busy with a brazing torch by the time you were fourteen. I was very hands-on. My dad was in the shop. He bought the he bought the the uh, the setup, the torch setup. He bought some other things, and I was bugging him all the time that I wanted to make this, I wanted to make that. So before before the uh, before the Chali came along, I wanted to make an electric car, and I built uh, my first one out of wood, and I didn't I didn't have enough enough of the right uh, ingredients in that one didn't go fast enough for me. And so I designed another one, a two passenger one, and it was all steel tubing and it had to go and, and cut up, cut apart some bikes some cruiser bikes and some other bikes and, and, and uh, created a chassis in between out of thin wall tubing and it was brazed together. And so uh, I was figuring out the brazing process at, at uh, 11, 12, 13 years old, and I was uh, not not intimidated by you know it at all. My dad was my my only rule my dad had is is that I couldn't do it without him in the house, and so he he didn't want me burning down the house. <laughs> he wanted to know that I was I was actually under some kind of supervision. So the idea of of fixing something and brazing something wasn't wasn't a completely new thing to me. It was something that I had already, already found some skill at. And so, you know, I was just, in those days, we don't, we don't kind of, 
really understand how hard it was to be a cyclist and, and afford it because everyone was was only barely able to afford one bike. I mean, barely. I mean, in a true sense, barely. It was, you know, you you never started out with a, a bike like we start out with today. You start out with maybe a frame like me and you look for a set of cranks and you look for a set of, of uh, hubs and you look for, you know, a way to build your own set of wheels and all these other things. You put it together. You build it up from scratch. You, I don't, I don't have anyone that I knew in those days that, that, that bought a completely put together bike. <laughs> I mean, it was not, it was not, that wasn't the world we lived in. So learning how to build wheels and, and all was a very normal thing. And of course, everything was tubular based. So everyone was, was familiar with how to repair tubulars. Um, but the frame side was always kind of the missing link. And, and, um, and so there was a, there was a opportunity to buy a broken Chinelli B, which had a seat stay that was fractured. And, and I, with my new skill set of brazing things together said, I could fix that. And so I did. And at 14, I, I had, uh, enough parts that I was working, um, working on that, that I, through my dad and stuff, built, built that Chinelli up and started racing it. And, and I want to, actually I didn't win. I got second place in a, in an intermediate race and then uh, quickly became 15. When I became a junior, I said, I'm going to build a bike. And, and it was, uh, it was a very short, short introduction of ideas and people that, that uh, said, you can't do that. And I had a guy, an English guy that, uh, was on and later was on the U.S. national team that only only recently after 45 years apologized for saying it to me he said if Richie can build a bike monkeys can build a bike and at 15 years old that only you know kind of made me more determined. Tom you must have been pretty confident of your brazen skills as well at 14 to take that Chinelli and then race it you must have trusted your work i appreciate that so the story behind the story is is that if you can so no one was repairing frames and of course everyone knew about broken frames because everyone was buying used bikes there was no hardly any used any new bikes so the idea i mean everything was a european bike and whether it's italy or england or france it was um you know, it was either one of the popular brands, Chile, Mazi, Polygagi in Italy. It was in England. It was uh, Cooper, um, Holdsworth, Bob Jackson. It was a list of, of well-known English bikes. And just about everyone had broken a bike and, and they didn't have any, any resource. There was no resource to repair them. Even before I built my first bike, I probably repaired five or six other bikes. And if you repaired a bike, what was happening to me is, is I was seeing what was underneath the skin of the bike. And I was discovering what was in my mind or what, what I was looking at those days, very poor workmanship, to be honest with you. I was looking at over overheated, overheated things, overheated joints. And so I was brazing what I thought was just as good at a, you know, overconfident 15 year old. And, and I said, if, if this is what I'm seeing in these repair bikes, I can do it too. So I did have, you know, quite an, uh, a skeptical group of racers that were, that were either teammates or, or people that were, you know, I was racing with on the weekends that looked at, you know, Richie showing up on a little Tommy Richie showing up on a bike and, and saying, stay away from that kid. He's going to, you know, his bike's going to break in the middle of the sprint and he's, we're all going to crash and die. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was, it was somewhat, you know, a short lived, uh, you know, fear, but, um, but eventually people said, man, um, he's winning and he's doing well. And, and I want one of those bikes also. But you had, you did enjoy it. 
I mean, a really very promising, well, not even very promising, you fulfilled that promise racing career in the States and around the California area uh, as a junior. As we touched on uh, when we opened with the show, you got you got a nickname, the Senior Slayer, because you were handing it to guys who had been in the Olympics, who were challenging to get in national teams and for national trophies. So how how why did you decide, because that would have been most kids' dream, I would have guessed, to go for the pro, the glamorous side? What pulled you into the, the manufacturing side? Okay, there's two parts of that answer. What you have to realize and what people don't understand is the 60s and 70s were were prime were practically uh, until I decided I wasn't going to pursue the Olympics in 76 um, that was that was the amateur era there was no such thing as a pro US rider and and going back to my comment about about hardly anyone being able to afford a bike. It was so different than Europe. What I what I came in contact with later when I came over to Europe in the 80s is a culture that was based on uh, completely different principles of going pro and becoming, you know, part of a uh, part of a team sponsorship. So a team relationship. So in Europe of course, we saw magazines, we saw, you know, images of Merckx and Ocotil and others, Tommy Simpson. Um, but we didn't understand it. We didn't understand how the U.S. would ever break into that. There was no, there was no entrance into that world. We were all kind of, you know, bastard stepchildren in the cycling industry. <laughs> and there was, there was just, there that we didn't have an avenue that was going to get us there. And it wasn't until a few, a few of the people that I raced with um, kind of broke away in that sense. Jacques was a good friend of mine and, and racer. So he was one year older than me. And even though I was, I was really successful and I was beating him and others on the junior side of things, I couldn't qualify. I couldn't even, I couldn't even race in the junior nationals. Uh, or the I mean the junior trials for for the world's team. I was beating seniors. I was beating the '72 Olympic team, Keith Moen, and a bunch of bunch of racers. But because of my age and because of restrictions, they were allowed to you know kind of do their thing, and and I was held back. So the uh, but Jacques, because of family situations and a, and a relationship he had in in uh, in Monterey with with an ex. Uh, European cyclist um, was introduced to introduced into the uh, I think I forget which was which team it was the first La Claire I don't I don't think that was it but anyway he he went over in advance of all of us and became a uh, a pro cyclist in Europe in France and then of course he got absorbed into that really didn't didn't have I mean he won probably some some race, I forget which ones, but it wasn't really wasn't until Le Mans that there was an awareness that an American could could stack up to the Europeans. So Le Mans, I left, Le Mans came. It was kind of like that, that was the handing, that was the transition. It was like in 76, I decided that uh, there wasn't a whole lot of interest on the pro side or I mean, on the on the cycling side and pro hadn't started yet. And, and I was interested in, in riding my bike more uh, for enjoyment at that point. And, and Le Mans soon thereafter came and basically turned the world, turned the American cycling world upside down. And I would, I would say that I've been, you know, I've been shy to say this, but the spotlight of the world looking at America differently made it possible for many things to happen. It wasn't, it, 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 Amer there was no, there was no cameras on the United States until Le Monde. All the cameras were pointed toward cycling outside of the United States. The cameras turned to the United States with Le Monde. And that point in time was exactly when 
we started experimenting with mountain bikes. And so the cameras picked up not just LeMond, but they picked up Gary and me and Joe and, and others riding these new bikes. And I would say that Greg LeMond is probably more responsible for the for the beginning of mountain bikes than anything. Really? <laughs> that's, an, that's an interesting take on it, for sure. So the, the names you mentioned there, uh, Joe and Gary, would that be Joe Breezer and Gary Fisher? Yeah, yeah, correct. So to, for listeners who are less familiar with the kind of the mountain bike um, side of side of our sport, it hasn't always existed. It's not like road cycling with a 150 plus going on career in racing. It was something that you were invert, involved in, in making happen. Is that right, Tom? You, you kind of took bikes that were, weren't designed to ride off road and you took them off road. And you did that with a group of people. Joe, as you say, and Gary Fisher, a name that lots of people will know from down tubes. Gary Fisher made or makes still uh, mountain bikes. Um, but a crucial guy is Jobs Brandt, who took you guys kind of off-roading to begin with, a bit of a father figure to a group of you. Is that correct? Yes. Previous, uh, simultaneous to everything that I've been that I've been describing as my life of, of building my first frame and racing for the first time, simultaneously, my dad introduced me to Jobs Brandt when I was 15 years old. And Yopes was famous for his his riding uh, epic rides. So we're talking leaving on Sunday morning at 8 a.m. and not returning until dark sometimes, <laughs> you know, and getting basically lost out in the middle of nowhere and people worrying about our safety and thinking we might die. True adventure riding. Yeah, true adventure riding. Like what you, you, what you hear stories about with the rough stuff um, and people like that. So... You know, the rough stuff guys didn't necessarily have uh, special equipment, special bikes, special anything. They just had their road bikes and they just had a desire to to go to, to go places that weren't paved. And so that was Yopes. Yopes, the Santa Cruz Mountains were, were our backyard and they were amazingly large. If you if you can imagine the Bay Area and you can imagine Marin and you can imagine the Santa Cruz Mountains, Marin, Mount Tamalpais, is large too, but the Santa Cruz Mountains dwarf Marin. I mean, it's like a factor of five in terms of size and space and roads and dirt roads and trails and, and all these things. Um, so the idea on, on Yoke's rides was, we're going to leave. I'm not telling you where we're going to go, because if I told you, you probably wouldn't come. And he would know all the places, all the turns, all the drinking spots. So he, crazy tidbit about Yopes, he never had a water bottle. His entire life of riding, no water bottle. Wow, really? In one of the hottest states in the, in the States? Yeah, yeah. And so what Yopes knew is he knew all the springs. And so the pictures that I, I could share with you is just like all these springs. Every time we stopped, every time there was a picture, that was a spring. And we drank from the spring, like Yopes did. The thing about Santa Cruz Mountains and the thing about uh, that period of time in, in, in the world is, is that he, he was king of, king of the dirt. Yopes was, there was, no, there was no second place. Everyone knew about Yopes. I invited, I invited Joe and I invited Gary to come down and ride with Yopes. And it was only after that that they invited me to come up and ride a repack. And what people don't realize is that is that these little communities, Palo Alto and the people that would pull from Yopes Rise was was actually quite large. People would come from maybe 20 or 30 miles away. They'd come from San Francisco or they'd come from San Jose and they would end up on Yopes's front porch on Sunday morning. I mean, that's a big radius. What people don't realize, what people don't realize in in Marin is, is that there was only 10 or 11 people that ever rode repack and they all came from a couple of miles each other there was just like a 5 mile radius they were they were neighbors no one came from the outside i was the first one to come from the outside 
And it was only after I had introduced them to, to off-road riding with yokes. And Repat was only, only really downhill. No one also, I mean, the idea of mountain biking wasn't mountain biking until you made it go uphill, in my, in my opinion. Repack, there was many people, the Cupertino riders and other, other riders were riding downhill in Saratoga in my backyard. And I didn't know about it, but they were doing it on the same bikes. Matter of fact, they showed up at Marin and ended up, ended up in 74 cyclocross nationals lining up behind racers for the first time and, and racing a race that they had no business being there, but they, for whatever reason, kind of decided that that was their last hurrah. They, they ended up, ended up having this crazy combo race of cyclocross riders and Cupertino riders and after that, they just left and never appeared again, and they just disappeared into the dust. Is this is this the guys that you said they used to to go out riding in their Levi's just to go downhill? Yeah, and they and so they showed up at this night, this uh, December, I think it was December fourteenth, nineteen seventy four, cyclocross race in Mill Valley, and introduced that kind of riding to Marin, and and but. Really, my point is, is that mountain biking wasn't about going downhill. That was that was something that was uh, around probably even before the Cupertino Riders. Um, but mountain biking was about making a, a nice, lightweight, multi-geared performance bike that was based on new materials, new components, and making it a cross-country bike. So were you making were you making those bikes for yourselves then? Were you making bikes for each other? Or more to the point, were you making the bikes for Yobs and and mates? I was, but Yopes okay, so the the uh the, the, the sad story about Yopes is is that he lamented ever showing me these dirt roads. <laughs> right. Why's that? Because it was his secret world. And me inventing or becoming a mountain bike known builder changed all that for him people became intimidated and landowners became intimidated by the by all these new riders that were out there on on trails and roads that yokes had permission and yokes had had kind of a blind eye saying you know have a good ride and and uh we're impressed with it to being overrun and so his his open his his kind of unique way of working his magic and showing us new places and being waved at became shouted at go home. And so there's a little known factoid about how that those years went that uh, that changed everything for him. So he never threw his leg over a mountain bike his whole life. Really? No. Yopes was Yopes was very negative about mountain bikes. So, what bikes would he be riding if he he was still on those kind of converted road frames? It was all the the bikes that I I you know he, when I met Yopes he started out in Chinelli and really he had been over to uh, Chinelli personally and and had Chino build him his first good bike and and uh, subsequently I think he had one or two more made after that. Um, but he broke everything. He broke axles and cranks and bikes and just like anybody. And so I was the first guy to come along and start repairing them. And after his bike just about had half the tubes replaced by me, he just said, Richie, why don't you build one? And it was, you know, it was kind of like, okay, I'm, I was waiting for this day to build Yopes a bike. And that was probably in 76 or something like that. And, um, and so the, 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 but, but the bike was the way he wanted it built. And it was probably the only bike that I really ever built that was so unique and so purposeful in terms of everything he wanted. The other thing about that is, is that at that time, I was becoming very well known in terms of lugless fillet brazing. And I, I had, I had thrown the lugs off many years ago, and I was building primarily um, lugless. And 
And so it gave, it gave me the opportunity to build uh, outside of the norms in terms of geometry, tubing diameters and things. So the trick, so the trick in, in, any, in any historical sense in terms of whatever bike it was, a, if a mountain bike or a, a unique bike for yokes or a tandem, all the things that, that I was building that no one else was building was you, the, the world was built around lugs. I mean, a builder wasn't, a builder would go, I can't do that. I don't have lugs. And I was going, no problem. And I was proving it. You know, if you look at Joe's story and the, the whole, whole beginnings of, of my story, it's, it was whether it be that woodsy bike that I showed you a picture of in 77, which was actually inspired by John Finley Scott, the late John Finley Scott, who was a big part of the story of mountain biking. He, um, he was a he was a Davis professor that hassled me for years. He was definitely a devotee of the Rough Stuff Fellowship, and to me, it was it was not interesting. I was doing many other things, and I was consumed in them, and I was riding my bike off road. But John wanted this special bike, and every time I saw him, which you know, I don't, he was an annoying person. He said, Richie you need to build a woodsy bike. <laughs> and I just, you know, I, I finally built a bike that like in that picture to shut him up. So define a woodsy bike. Well, for John Finley Scott, it was built around a somewhat um, relaxed, like the, like, you know, 70, 69, 70 degree angled bike with Clearances for 650Bs and cantilever, bike, cantilever brake. So there's combo. It was somewhat of a cross bike, but not a cross bike. And that was his interpretation of a woodsy bike and what, what he wanted. He started hassling me and showing me what to do back in 70, probably four, three, four, two. I mean, he was doing it in the 60s. And so those, those bikes that you, you were building for yourself, for Job's and riding off-road on, if you had them up against the wall, did they just look like a normal road bike? They were the same bikes we raced on. Yeah. With different wheels. So there were, I mean, back, back to my original statement is, is that no one had two bikes. Hmm. Everyone was riding their racing bike. It's just with a different set of wheels. Because you look at it today and um, you talk about a gravel specific bike, which I don't know how you just, you feel about that term, but. It's like, oh, well, it needs a more relaxed geometry. It needs, you know, provisions. Maybe it has 650B. It's, it's changed here, there, and everywhere. Whereas what you guys were riding in the mid-70s was just, as you said, your road bikes with bigger tires and different wheels. So the bikes, the frames, just about all of them, there was no tight clearance mm. road bikes. So just about whether it came from England or Italy or my, my shop or whatever, practically every bike had room for clearance because people had to put fenders in them. Mm. Okay. And Campy hadn't introduced their two different size brakes. So Campy came out with their first 52 clearance brakes in 19, whatever it was, 1975 and didn't come out with their tight clearance, 49 centimeter brakes until I don't know, 76, 77 or something. And so the idea that bikes had to have clearance was different because the origins of that, in my opinion, had to do with the European racing scene. So if you were a pro rider in Europe, which was also changing rapidly, and you broke a spoke, what happened? You waited for... <laughs> You waited for Michelin. I mean, you waited, I mean, not Michelin, Mavic. You waited for somebody to come along, but those were only, you know, few and far between. There wasn't follow cars. So you had to ride that broken spoke wheeled bike to the point that you could get another wheel. Yeah. So it was very practical. And it wasn't until in the 80s when you could get a wheel change quickly that people changed the clearance and the tire diameters on bikes. I and it went down to, you know, that 19 mil skinny tub. Yeah. And then sort of lasted until only about 10 years ago, really. Yeah. And so, you know, we live in, we live in, you know, a world where people don't look at history in the same way that when I, I mean, 
let me go back just to the beginning of me building my first bike. When I built number one, when I was 15 and showed it to Yopes, he wasn't impressed. He almost ridiculed me in front of other people. And he said to me, Richie, the bike has been around for a hundred years. Who the heck are you to think that you can build this? And that kind of a comment, people don't realize, you know, kind of what, what's underneath that kind of a comment. It's a, it's a, it's a wonderful respect for the bike. First of all, you know, the history of the bike and people coming along, whether it be me or, or even Porsche or Ferrari or other people that thought to themselves, I love the bike. I want to, I want to build a bike better than anyone ever has built a bike. Many, many, many people have tried to build a better bike. And who is this 15-year-old kid coming along thinking he's going to build a better bike in a in a basically a zero vacuum environment, you know, of California, Palo Alto, California, when everything that came from Europe was considered to be the state of the art. And so for me, I was I was not threatened by that comment. I was respectful of that comment because I respected people that came before me, my dad or other engineers. And I thought to myself, you know, you're right. I, I am very much going to humbly look at and study all the history of bike design and make sure that I am not missing something. And I've got people in my life like Yokes and my dad to help me out in that process. And that was the way I thought. So those, I mean, particularly Yotes in that anecdote, in that scenario, for a nice way of describing him, he sounds like a real man of integrity, if not maybe uh, a traditionalist perhaps, or a taskmaster when it came to riding, you were saying the, the kind of rides you went on. How, how did that translate into the riding? Were there days where he was just leading the group and you were doing 100 miles out into the mountains and your legs were just falling off? And how did you cope with that? Or how did the rest of the crew cope with it? How did you get people off the mountain when someone couldn't, when you ran out of tubulars? So Yopes was, um, was six foot four. He, he was German. So Yopes, uh, he wasn't born in the United States. I think he was, his, his dad came over as professor at Stanford when, when World War II was, was just at the end or something. So he was very much a very strong-minded German engineer. And because his dad was a professor at Stanford and he knew so many educated people, he was a teacher. Yeah, right. And I was a student. It was very, it wasn't hard for me to listen to him. Mm -hmm. You know, and I had all kinds of questions. I wanted to know answers. And so for, for everyone else, it was a hard ride on Sunday. For me, it was a professor teaching a student. And he was happy to share just about any answer, every any question I had, and I had a lot of questions. What was what was your? I mean, other than the the classroom scenario and the lessons, what was your Sunday in hell? What what was a ride where you just thought, I can't wait to get home, or I'm never going to get home? There was never one. Really? You have to you have to link this. Okay, let me let me tell you another <laughs> antidote. So. In 1974, I was at the top of my probably fitness, skill set, all kinds of things that came together, and I was winning everything I entered. And, and as a junior, there was nothing interesting for me, and so I, I started entering all the senior races and just about won everything. I was beating practically everyone on the, on the Olympic team, everyone on the national side. I mean, Mike Neal... Boyer, all all the names that that were that were at the top in the United States, they were they were. I was racing and training with them and stuff like that. That year, the California Highway Patrol decided to pull all the sponsorships for all the all the road races that I was winning. Yeah. No more road racing. Everything got switched with a very in a very quick way in that season to. Uh, criteriums. I hated criteriums. Mm. <laughs> and, and I ended up 
learning to do well in them and all, but it was, it was like a, it was like a pinball machine when it came to crashing yeah. and going back to the, the thinking process is if you crashed your only bike, you weren't going to show up the next weekend. You weren't going to necessarily be around, you know, in a couple, in a month, you weren't necessarily, you know, whether it be because you hurt yourself or the bikes you broke so bad, you, you, you didn't have the ability to repair or whatever. And the choice was go race criteriums or go on a Yopes ride. And I just started to go on Yopes rides more and more. And at that time, Yopes had such a respect and rapport amongst the category one riders at the time that we would call each other up and say, well, what races, what race uh, are you going to do this weekend? And, and, um, you know, I'd say, ah, shoot, it's going to be the Berkeley criterium. I don't want to race that. I think I'm going to race you, uh, ride a Yopes ride. And, the, and, you know, whoever it was, a friend that was training, he says, dang, I'm not in good enough shape. Usually the choice was racing against the best in California. We're going on a Yopes ride. And there'd always be an equation in your mind is, I'm not fit enough to go on a Yopes ride. <laughs> <laughs> And that was the environment. And that bred a lot of frustration and angst and interest in off-road and all kinds of things that people don't, in the same way that you don't understand the correlation between Greg LeMond and amateur versus professional and the whole spotlight on California, that was also a big factor for me and other people. Riding with Yopes was not only fun and educational, but it was also very good for training. And so if I ended up on a Yopes ride, I usually ended up riding out with Yopes ahead of practically anyone else. I mean, it was a kind of a, a, a death march, usually at the end. <laughs> <laughs> and who would, who would end up back at Palo Alto first? And so it was very, very good training. Really, it, 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 it was easy for me to transition into mountain bike competition and the whole world of mountain biking. It was just, it was as seamless as putting another set of shoes on. And it feels like these Yost rides also, as somebody with a burgeoning passion for bike manufacturing and making their own frames, you're learning a lot more on a ride with Yopes, hacking it through the mountains, learning about where the weaknesses of a frame may be, of a wheel set may be, rather than, you know, potentially getting in a massive crash around a, a really fast criterion. Yes. So, so Yopes's Yopes's focus was on the bicycle wheel. So his book that is now whatever 15th edition is all about wheel design and, and what makes wheels what they are. And people, it's a mystery. I mean, there's a lot of people that don't understand really, you know, the value of, of that book and, and what it taught people. Um, but my focus was on the frame and so, and on component design. So we haven't talked about that. So in the very beginning, I was, I was working on not just the frame, but I was working on stems and seat posts and, and uh, other parts in the, that was that $12,000 lathe. I mean, that was in a Bridgeport mill. That was what that was doing. That was making components. And um, I built, many things that most people don't even know about. The ideas that I was I was developing were all based on really personal breaking experiences. So if if I if I was my own guinea pig in terms of racing and making my own stems and them not breaking or them breaking and people seeing that Richie's handlebar broke off in the middle of something, that was a big deal. You know, fortunately, I never broke a bar. I never broke a stem. I never broke a bar. And so I'd be, I'd develop a certain confidence and understanding in component design that no one had. No one that was a frame builder was making components at the same time. You either, you know, you either made frames with lugs or you made, or you made, you know, certain components like companies in the United States, a company on the East Coast called Wayless. Most people don't even know about. Probably it was British, British inspired, but it was um, 
it was like one of the first component companies. A guy named Harlan Meyer and High E made uh, hubs uh, and Phil Wood, of course. So there was a very small spattering of, of component makers. So it wasn't something that was completely out of the normal to, 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 to make components, but mostly there were machine, there were hubs and there were, there were things like that. No one was making a stem. <laughs> it was like, that was, that was in the realm of dangerous. So my first stem was a tubular chromoly stem, fillet braised, of course, because that's what made it possible. And it weighed four ounces. And it was attached to a sleeve in the steering column that was silver soldered in. Now, how much do you think I, I saved in weight over a Chinelli stem? I'd say a fair amount over a Chinelli coil stem. A Chinelli, a Chinelli 1A stem weighed, if I recall correctly, about 13 ounces. Right. That's a lot, yeah. And my, and my stem weighed four. And how much do you think a Nuevo Record seat post weighed at the time? Uh, another 13 ounces. Uh, probably 15. Wow. And my seat post weighed, weighed six ounces. Wow. So without, without a whole lot of effort, I had a full pound of weight saving that never had been taken off of a bike until that time. Other people were playing with hubs and, you know, quick release axles that were thread on like high E, um, but I was saving real weight. That was part one of the Tom Ritchie episode. Make sure you tune in for part two, which you'll be able to find on all your podcast outlets.